Hi, this is Brennan Davis from Bedrock Games and the Bedrock Blog, and I'm here with Robert Conley to talk about his Majestic Fantasy RPG, the Kickstarter that he launched. Uh, Rob, when did you launch this Kickstarter? I launched it at the beginning, uh, the first week of August, and it will conclude just after Labor Day. And uh, and so we want to talk about that. And Rob, for those who don't know, is a he's a game designer. He is kind of known for. You, I don't know. I think of you as like the king of sandbox play. Like you know, like if I if I am struggling with an issue that's come up in a sandbox campaign, I go to one of your books or I go to your blog, and I I look up. Like you have a very extensive extensive series of articles on. Yeah, I got a on, few opinions yeah, on that. Yeah. Um, so I so I'm going to call you the king of sandbox here, and uh, and and we're going to talk about that. But first, why don't you just tell people about the the majestic fantasy RPG basic rules? Okay, so most of, um, for those of you who don't know, I uh, I have a few books uh, that I got published with uh, Necromancer Games, and, or I got one one part of one book published with Necromancer Games, the Waterlands of High Fantasy box set, and then I uh, had a couple books published with uh, Goodman Games, uh, another Judges Guild remake called Thieves of Madagascar, and then my own I my own stuff in the Point of Light, which are uh, settings, uh, each book had, Points of Light book had four settings designed for sandbox campaign formatted like the Judges Guild, uh, Waterland of Pride Fantasy, but they don't cost you an arm and a leg to get. And you get four of them per book. And uh, then I started publishing my own, and the, the one I, uh, and I was lucky in that I got a license from Judges Guild to use some of their Waterlands material because for 40 years, whenever I run a fantasy campaign, I use a setting that I call the Majestic Waterland, mm. which is started out as the Waterland of high fantasy. Then my maps were out, and uh, so I decided to redraw them, and when I redraw them, I decided to quote, improved them with all the ideas and stuff that was happening in my previous campaign. And it was that point where it kind of became its own thing. Similar geographies, some of the names are the same, but it's more Game of Thrones than the original, which is more Swords and uh, swords and Sorcery, like Fitzlieber or Conan, Conan-esque. And uh, then I continue building on there. So... Now, can you just clarify, when you say more Game of Thrones, what, do you mean grim or do you mean, like, uh, more grounded uh, in history? Uh, more grounded in history, uh, more about, you know, a lot of my adventures arose from the clash of uh, politics and religions and culture. Because what I uh, when I started, I was known as the referee who let uh, players trash his campaign. Oh, you want to be king? Okay, well, it's not going to be easy, but let's hear your plan. And, and a lot of players had decent plans. So we put it into play. There were some reverses, some setbacks, but by and large, most of them stuck it through, and they became a king. We carved out a realm. And, uh, and then I got the bright idea. Okay, so that campaign, uh, Brian got to be king of Gnome. All right, so... Um, I'm going to make that part of the background for the next campaign. And, uh, which was funny when the first, when the player realized that I was doing that, they said, wait a minute, you're using the stuff I did in the previous campaign. Yeah. 
oh, I'm not going to mess with my realm. <laughs> <laughs> because they, they, because one of the challenges I throw them was that, you know, NPCs who were adventuring parties of their adventurers of their own tried to mess with the player and the players had to deal with them. So this kept going on and on until I redrew my map and became, and it became the majestic, uh, uh, waterland. And, uh, so that's how I became, you know, the sandbox, king of sandboxes, as you described me on. And then I mean, I don't think anybody's got as much written material as you do on the like that. That has got to be. I think Kevin Crawford's up there, and there's a okay. couple other guys that 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 are uh, the Land of Nod is another one. But I mean, uh, in terms of your your advice that you give on your blog, that is a very deep, deep layered series of articles. Well, I'm def- I think I appreciate that, and I'm definitely up there. But there are there are others who <laughs> who try to do the same thing. Um, so the points of light that I mentioned were sort of like what I, my majestic waterland, but with the judges guild zero mm-hmm. numbers filed off, and then I lucked into getting a license, so that saved a lot of work. So I wrote a supplement, and I figured, okay, I didn't just want to write a setting supplement you know describing my setting I want to make it immediately useful so I threw in some rules uh, from uh, and I chose to use uh, Swords and Wizardry which was uh, a clone of the original edition and uh, do you know which which, uh, just so people understand which edition like of the you know like of which... the world's most popular games okay oh, uh, because of <laughs> section uh seven of the open game license oh that's okay okay my mistake um and that's like compatibility without a separate trademark license so so uh, hence the usefulness of the world it, the, the original edition of the world's most popular role-playing game and that extends to even talking you know on the internet and not just like the cover of the book and everything I don't know, but do I chance it? No, this that's a, fair. That's fair. I just I mean, I, I'm on a podcast to market my uh, rules, so it's marketing. But I guess it, it would still be. You're right. It would still be marketing. Um, yeah, I've I haven't had to contend with the open license, so I'm I'm kind of you know, curious you, about it. You're kind of like make your own system kind of guy. So, um, but uh, what uh, and so uh, I'm sorry, I, I interrupted you. But so this oh, is okay. the uh, the Kickstarter is is a um uh it's primarily rules focus mm-hmm. and it's a continue basically so when i came out with the majestic waterlands 10 years ago i didn't stop there i kept on using those rules mm. through several campaigns and i kept adding more and more stuff you know tweaking stuff and about five years ago i realized i had a complete system here and even then i didn't really want to jump into making my own system but I I don't I'm not in distribution, but I do sell to game stores. I do sell physical copies at conventions. Mm-hmm. Without and the guys at Fraud God Games and Swords and Wizardry, you know, the fact there are Osric books available out there, that's you know, that's all fine and dandy. Until you realize you you're selling supplements to a game that you don't have the core rule books to sell as also. Mm. It, it just it can't, you just can't make it work. Okay. When you're selling physical copies on the internet, it's fine. But there, so 
that tipped me over to say, you know what, I need a set of rules to go along with the setting material that I'm writing. I get you. But, but, and I know this is a bit convoluted, but again, I also well aware that there are, if you go on Drive Through RPG and check out check out the OSR category and the core rules, you see there's at least a hundred yeah. complete systems, and a lot of them are damn good systems. And so I was thinking, though, if I release this as a core rule book like everybody does, I'm just going to be another guy in this sea of 100. Hmm. I'm going to have fans. But then I realized that when most people run campaigns, they take it from, like, one set of rules, Swords and Wizardry, Osric, Old School Essentials. But then they add other stuff from other systems to make the game that they want. Yeah. So I figure... I can make a, I can get my hand stuff in the hands of a lot of people if, if I'm part if I'm like the default choice for that other stuff. Okay. Okay. So what I'm going to do is release my system as a series of supplements. Like the, the the first supplement I'm working on is called the Lost Grimoire Magic, and that would detail magic users, spells, and all the stuff I did with magic user plus a short adventure, some setting. But if I once I get done with those supplements. If somebody wants to use them as a system, there's nothing that ties them together. So that's what this Kickstarter is about. Okay. I am coming out with a basic set of rules from levels one to five that has all the elements of the larger system, the majestic, the majestic fantasy RPG, but for you know it presented as a complete whole. And it'll be about 140 to 150 pages when it's done, depending on how the art shakes out. Mm -hmm. And uh, so if somebody gets all the later supplements that I'll be producing, they will have a one place they can see how it all works together. Okay. And are you going to continue with, like, levels 6 through 10 and things well, like Well, yeah, the supplement, like the magic supplement I'll tell you, it mm -hmm. will have all the magic future classes. And okay. And it will go level 1 through, and I think it... It, it, they go to infinity, but they 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 effectively cap out at uh, sixteen level sixteen because of the older edition uh, style. Okay. Leveling. Okay. No, that that makes sense. Um, okay. So, there's so gonna be one for wizards, fighters, uh, rogues, um, because I just I don't use the classic edition thief. Mm -hmm. I use uh, a um, a variant that I made, and I call them rogue classes, and the one that's in my. Uh, basic rules it's called a burglar which is like a thief but it, they're more competent than a classic edition, edition thief let's just say i like burglar i used burglar in in, a, in one of my little pdf supplements when i tried to make a like more old style fantasy type thing i think it didn't you play a burglar in the play test i might have i might have i might have a a gravitation towards that word in general um but yeah i i, I rem I remember we did um, the one the one that where we did the uh, the YouTube video where we recorded it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think so. Yeah, the Feet of the Russet Lord. I mean, yeah. You played uh, uh, a noble son or something like that. Yeah, I, I think so. I kind of remember now. Um, that was a lot of fun. Um, now, what does the book kind of contain for one through five? Is it gonna ha it's it's gonna have classes and things like that? Yeah, in there? it starts out you know explains the six attributes. It has classes. Then uh -huh. uh, it goes into what I'm calling background, which are for this because I only have a limited amount of pages. Mm -hmm. They're effectively racial backgrounds: elf, dwarf, uh, 
half elves and stuff but I, I know there's some recent controversies over the use of the word race and the idea of race in fantasy RPGs but I have been for me I've always used the idea that there, yeah you might got a race but races have multiple cultures mm-hmm. so uh, a dwarf of Hammergard Keep is not the uh, same as a dwarf of Cockbot. Some of their physical attributes are the same, but there's a, but some of the more cultural details and things that come along with that are different. And uh, so I, I don't get in a whole lot of detail in this book about that, but just to be consistent with the later supplement, I called it background instead of race. And okay. In my introduction, I'm up front. These are just racial background. And then, uh, then I have abilities, which is what I use for skills. And I call them abilities because in the spirit of the original edition, um, any character can attempt any uh, skill. Because in the original edition, you described what you did and the, your referee made a ruling because all you had stats mechanics for was combat or spellcasting. Mm-hmm. You know, or, or in the case of clerics, you could turn undead. And that's it. So, but players could sneak around. They could try to knock out a guard. They can climb walls. They can weave a basket if that's what they needed to do. But all characters were equal in that regard. When you read the account of the earliest days, it was more about, uh, you know, what the imagination of the players, what they thought they could do. And sometimes the referee would say, well, if you have a high dexterity, some things are easier, like sneaking around, than if you, and some things are easier if you have a high strength. So I, so I came up with an ability system, which is very straightforward. You just roll a d20, 15 or better, you succeed. You only need to roll, though, if you're in combat or a circum- some situation with significant failure. I explain in the book that I assume that even first level characters have a measure of competency. For me, first level means you just got done with your apprentice training. So okay. you have your initial batch of whatever, if you're a magic user, cleric, fighter, or rogue. I mean, if you're a fighter, your first level means you got out of basic training, you're capable of being in, in an arm, army and fighting in formation, you know, which are not trivial skills. So the ability system reflects that. So when you add your bonus from your attribute and the ability bonus that you get with your class, you know, you find that you have about a 50-50 shot, even in a stressful situation, of, in one or two abilities, like stealth, climb wall, locution, haggling. And the rogue class, the burglar that you played, um, those classes are all about being better at things other than combat and spellcasting. So as a burglar, you had Ledgerman, which allowed you to pick locks really well. You had Stealth. You had uh, Climbing. Those kind of skills make up the burglar. In the later supplement, when I get into that, there are other rogue classes like Merchant Adventures, which focus more on haggling and uh, being a merchant going out to dangerous territory and making the deal. And and so... The abilities section, those are, I just want to make sure I understand, those are class skills or those are general skills that everybody... Those are general skills that anybody can do. Okay. So anybody okay. can stealth, anybody can pick locks. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, but burglars better at those things. Okay, okay, and so, uh, and so you got the the abilities. Do, does the is the book going to have the spells, or is that going to be in the later supplement? No, the book. For... This book is going to have levels one through three for the spells. Okay, okay. Everything and... that you need to to run levels one through five will be in this book. Okay. Nothing omitted. Okay, okay. Once beyond level five. You need to go to the supplements. Okay, I got you. And he says, so I, have, I have magic items, I have monsters, I have, and I even have two chapters on referee advice. Uh, one of them is, I think, would be very interesting. Uh, but I think both of them are interesting. The first one is about ruling. I'm sure you heard the phrase rulings about rules being throw, thrown around in relation to the OSR. Yes, but yes. I'm surprised. There's not a hot, a lot of whole. There's not a lot of practical advice on how do you take classic edition mechanics to make ruling. Okay, so that's what this chapter is. How do I use if I'm just limited to armor class, saving throws, to hit with a d20, attributes, and uh, hit points? Okay, what? How can I use those to say to knock a chalice out of the villain's hand because they're about to drink from it and take over the world? How do I, uh, you know, uh, make a ruling to uh, trip a guy or knock out a guard or any number of other things that uh, the rules don't explicit have explicit mechanics for? Mm -hmm. So I go into that and explain how I handle it. So, for example, with the uh, uh, the guy with the chalice, you make a normal to hit roll. But in lieu of doing damage, you're going to declare, I knocked the chalice out of the guy. But because uh, it's something bad happened to the guy, he makes a saving throw because as a mechanic, saving throws are used in the classic edition to avoid something bad happen. Now, traditionally, they're thought of avoiding traps, like a pit trap or a uh, uh, or a poison gas or being yeah. pricked by a poison needle when you open a lock. But they can be applied to anything bad happening to you. And the nice thing about saving throws is they scale as you level. So they, rep they have a component of experience in them. Mm. So it okay. makes, to me, it makes sense that you're trying to knock a guy out of, a chalice out of a guy's hand if he is like one hit dice or one first level he's not going to have as good a chance as the guy who is ninth level or nine hit dice of keeping a hold of that that chalice so you know it's not i don't go into a lot of a shopping list of rules i just i just kind of try to teach people what i do to use those mechanics to make rulings like that chalice example I was uh, talking about. Well, and, and also, I mean, you're the person I went to when I needed advice on that subject. So I, you know, you're, you're, uh, it's definitely your area in my opinion. Um, well, thank so, you. Yeah. So I, I'd, I'd very much be interested in that, that. Is that, you said that's one of the sections of the GM yeah, chapter? Yeah. And, and, and the other referee section is about uh, a basic overview of running uh, some of the elements of running a sandbox campaign. Mm. You know, I talk about, uh, you know, uh, you need to build a lo some locales, some NPCs, and you need to write up a, a <laughs> series of plans. These are, you know, you, you pick a handful of NPCs and you give them a plan. What, what would they be doing if the PC did not exist? 
and then I talk about setting the world in motion, you know, which is, you know, the NPC. Okay, the NPCs have their plan. They start acting on them. Now the PCs are in the picture. And I talk about how after every session you should evaluate what the PCs did or did not do and alter the plans in, in, in accordingly. The plans are not like a set of railroad leading into the future. They're more like a battle plan. And the best generals use their plan, battle plan as a structure and it allows them to be, and the battle plan will have contingency because yep. it will allow them to be prepared. While the worst generals will just rigidly st stick to their plan and that's it. And yeah. those lead to defeat. Well, it's the same with sandbox campaign. Yes, you sort of have a idea if the PCs weren't around, this is what's going to happen to the uh, future. But you commit after the end of each session to altering these plans in light of what the PCs do or don't do. And then the next session builds on that. There's another alteration. So by the time you're at the end of the campaign, things are completely different. Well, I also talk about building up uh, your bag of stuff, which is, you know, if your players decide to go left instead of right and you're not prepared, how you handle that. So I touch on that. Not a, Because it's just the basic rules, I don't go in tremendous amount of details, but I, I give you a general structure where I think refer, people buying the product can build up. So okay. like I talk about, okay, picture in your mind a peasant house and now add one or two variations of that in your head. So the next time the player goes into the village and they decide to check out this peasant's house, you have something in your head, mind that you can just pull out and, and use. And it can be in paper, it can be in your mind. And then after the session, if you think that's gonna be visited again, then you can just take the time to make it something more unique and then put that in your notebook. But, so I, that's the basic gist of the chapter where I go in more detail of some of the things I uh, wrote about on my blog and bring it together as, as part of a systematic whole. What always struck me about that and, and your general attitude towards it is the the emphasis on NPCs, actually. And, um, and I like, the, the language I used to use to talk about this was living adventure because I first heard that in the Feast of Goblins module for Ravenloft, where you had all these NPCs that were supposed to have goals and be trying to achieve them, and they were supposed to adapt and change what they did depending on what the players did. And so you were intended to treat the NPCs just basically like they were PCs. Do you know what I mean? Just kind of, sure, you know, doing doing what they had. So so I always call that living adventure. Um, but that but what you describe sounds very similar to that, where it's um. Uh, where it's, you know, because I think most people, when they think sandbox, I think the image that comes to mind is a hex map for obvious reasons. Um, but sometimes people get stuck on the hex map and forget about the characters. And uh, it, it is sometimes maybe an impediment to people trying sandbox because they don't realize that it's, uh, you know, that it can be very fruitful in terms of, uh you know, interacting with NPCs and role playing and a lot of this other stuff that you were talking about where, you know, like the players in your campaigns were allowed to destroy the setting. Do you know what I mean? Because they could contribute to it. And so, um, so I don't know. I, I, I don't know if you have any additional things to say about that, but I do. I have well, a... yeah, I mean, it's called, I call it the, I call it the blank grid, the blank hex, uh, 
problem because, you know, back, you know, it, it was the Waterlands box set team that coined the term uh, sandbox campaign. Mm. The idea of sandbox predated what we did. I'm not claiming we invented sandbox, but mm. we gave it a formal name. And we did it because we needed to explain why the hell you would buy this $70 <laughs> box. But the mistake we made is we kind of emphasized you could start in this village and just explore the map and see what's there. Mm -hmm. So people literally took that as the definition of a sandbox campaign. And then within a couple of months, we started getting reports of all these camp, a lot of campaign, more campaigns were failing than succeeding by doing this. Mm -hmm. And then we didn't have this problem. And then, you know, a bunch of us were chatting and, I, I'm not claiming I'm, I did this, but I was definitely one of the people who realized that we realized what these people were doing was not quite what we did as a group. We don't put players in the middle of a blank hex grid. Instead, we put we do put in the players in the middle of a hex grid, but we describe what's without them or what's around them. We give them a handful of rumors to start with, mm -hmm. and we make it relevant to something that they said I'm interested in doing as a, as my character. So if a fighter says I'm interested in fighting in the arena, well, we would plant some rumors about the arena and gladiatorial mm -hmm. schools and all that. And if a magic user said I'm interested in researching uh, forgotten spells. Well, we would incorporate that into the rumor, as well as have totally random stuff happen. Mm -hmm. So that's it's from there is when we started to talk more about world in motion, the bag of stuff, and we all came up with related but separate terms for it. Um, the other thing I want to point out: the sandbox is just not about it doesn't have to be about exploring the map there's another type of map and that's what i call the social the social map just like in life the inhabitants of a setting form a web of interpersonal connections that is something that can be explored who does the village uh chief know who does the baron know and who are the Baron's enemies? And who are the Baron's allies? And that, you know, if, if you, you know, you can't go crazy about it because in life, the, if you try to map uh, the social web of, say, just your school, it just gets crazy big really quick. Mm -hmm. So you kind of try to limit yourself to about a half a dozen things at each step of the way. But the thing about doing the social web, in addition to the map, is that I find that players a lot more they, they, they get invested more when it when it's about other people, other NPCs. I call it the soap opera effects. Mm -hmm. You know, and they want to continue while exploring the map kind of a niche taste. But, you know, if you get them in the if you if you can describe an interesting situation with an interesting group of NPCs, that generally gets everybody every time. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. I, I noticed that a lot when I ran more modern settings where physical exploration is less, it's kind of harder to do the physical expo exploration. And so I would lean more on the, like you said, the social map. Sure. And, uh, and then, and then that carried back into my, uh, my fantasy games. Um, so, uh, 
what I mean, I, I think you covered most of this, but I, I, I want to ask this question just because in case there wasn't anything in there that you covered in, in the answer you just gave. But aside from all that, like what are are there any other like misconceptions about the sandbox that, that you want to address? Um, a lot of people, especially if they read my how to sandbox, how to make a sandy sandbox, uh, thinks it's uh, a lot of work, and it can be. I mean, you're detailing a world, and you got to be prepared for your possibility that the players not just go left or right, but forward, backwards, northeast, southeast. You know, and it gets overwhelming. Well, to that I say, pick. So keep your list of stuff to the number that you can handle. If it's only three items, then it's only three items. Mm-hmm. I think you're going to need more than two, so I think three is about the minimum. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to make 12. If you only have ideas for four things, then stick with that. Just make them four interesting things. Mm-hmm. And don't worry about that, you know, um, about that. And just be flexible. It, You know... That's the, the thing about what I try to do is, you know, if you trash my, I, I'll let you trash my setting all day long, you know, I, I'll handle it, you know, and, uh, you know, I don't, sometimes in the worst case scenario, I'll say, look, can we end the session here? I got some work to do to handle what you want to do next. Yeah, yeah. But most of the time I'm able to keep it keep it going to the end of the session and then do the work afterwards. But yeah, just if you're intimidated by the scope of it, then narrow the scope. Focus on a smaller area, a smaller number of NPCs, do what's comfortable for you. Well, and what you just said there too, I find that um, if people are worried about the extra work that Sandbox might present to them, letting players trash your setting is one of the things that actually reduces workload because you don't... For me at least, I notice when I allow that to happen... I, I, <laughs> excuse me. I feel like, uh, like, the work is being done for me because I'm not the one generating the adventure as much anymore. It's kind of the players who are now giving me material that's a lot easier to spin new complications to. Do you know what I mean? Oh, so, sure. So and you're finding your creativity. Okay, so you know you make. So, for example, in one of my campaigns, I made this pl- place called the Majestic Fastness. It's like a mega dungeon, mm-hmm. and it was a dwarven uh, city taken underground, dwarven city taken over by a dragon. And I had a lot of fun building it, and it was this elaborate structure, and so forth. And a lot of people do that kind of work, and you know, whereas a um, sandbox, your creativity. You actually get more out of you use cookie cutter things that you just throw in. Okay, here's a peasant house, here's a castle, here's a thing, and it's, it may be the same castle that you used three sessions ago, mm-hmm. even though it's in a different part of the region. Uh, because what matters is the people who live there. Okay, the events okay. that are unfolding around it. Um, so your 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 creativity kicks in to think of interesting consequences to what the players are doing, as opposed to, you know, on the more nuts and bolts. But you don't get away completely at that. That there are times when they go to a place and it's definitely sitting down there 
mapping out level one of the dungeon, level two of the dungeon is what's called for. Mm -hmm. And uh, have fun with it. But for the most part, uh, it's less is more. So you can just keep, you know, because the players would be more fascinated by the interconnections you create. And that's where your creativity will be going. Okay. No, that makes sense, I think. The, um, the, the I, 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 tend to, I tend to lean more, I notice. Like, like I mean, you've seen my maps, and, and I, 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 I do have sort of a hex map approach, uh, and, or, you know, largely due to your help. Um, but, but most of that is really about the social structures that exist within that map. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, your maps like, have a lot of note, uh, notes on who is where, who is, you know, basically this group is here, this group is here, this group is here. Yeah, and and the and I and I find it's because of what you're saying, because like that, I don't know. For me, that's just an easy way to. Uh, that's where I enjoy being creative, but it also, it it seems to be better fuel for me during a game in terms of you know, having the players have stuff to do. Like there. Are, you know, like you said, there are places to explore, but but a lot of a lot of the work that I do tends to be well. There's this organization, and these are the people in it, and this is the group that they're enemies with, and this is the territory they control, and this is what they're trying to do over here. And I find that uh, that's the kind of stuff that players can really key into very easily. Um, I do something very similar to mine. You know, I have a forest, but I know who's in the forest, and uh, even if it's just a simple list of names, you know, orcs, dryads, sprites, brownies, and uh, treants, and that's enough for me to riff off of that and uh, create an interesting place. The players for visit if they actually visit there. And meanwhile, when it when I when they encounter something, I'll throw out the same forest clearing mm. battle map or graphic I used a dozen times before. Just the characters are different. A name can go a long way. A name can go. Oh a yeah. Long. I had an organization with eighty-seven members in it, and I just wrote out a list of names and statted some of them, and I used the names as like guideposts for when the players actually would bump into individual characters. Um, oh, and that's that's an important part of these basic rules. Now, this is something different than other rule sets. Mm -hmm. So I have a section of monsters, but I have a section that is equally long, titled NPCs. So in that section, I you know I start out you know I should have I should have had my table of contents up here. Just give me a second here to fire it up. There we go. So monsters, I have things like giant centipedes, pegasus, skeletons, so forth. But NPCs, you know, I talk about uh, you know different uh, rogue types, fighters, magic users. You know, I give you stats for an apprentice magic user, a magic user who's now a full member of the guild and he's around third level. And then a higher level magic user who's uh, considered a master of, of the guild. And, you know, the same with uh, clerics. I give uh, two types of clerics, uh, the, the priest of Deliquane, the goddess of honor and justice, I give an acolyte, a full priest, and uh, a uh, bishop, basically, type. 
And then I do that same for the rivals of Delacoin, the, the priests of Sarath, who are who's the god of the dragon god of uh, war and order, and uh, he's known as a tyrant god. And again, to find the act, what the acolytes look like, what the priests look like, and what their they don't have bishop, they have what they call archons, what an archon looks like. And uh, so I go through these, and then I even do these. If you look in the monster section. You won't find orcs. You won't find littermen. I put all the, quote, monsters that are capable, that are, have cultures, mm-hmm. which includes orcs. I put orcs, goblins, littermen, serpentmen. Uh, I put all those in the NPC sections as well. So you have uh, your basic orc tribesmen. Mm-hmm. You have your orc shaman. You have your orc uh, uh Leader, you know, he grouped, commands a small group of orc, and then I put an orc chief in there, and I do the same, similar things for the other uh, uh, intelligent monsters as well. So that section does. So what you can do is you can pick these mo- out and say you can write that list. You know, you have a bandit gang in the forest, so you pick a couple of entries from uh, the. Uh, the rogue section, which has the bandits in there, and then maybe you decide that the chief is a unique character, so you can take the, the, the bandit chief I have in there and customize him in the way that you want to customize it and leave the rest the same, which would save a ton of work for the type of uh, for sandbox campaign and in the type of campaigns you run. That's a, that's really interesting. Number one, the, the, that you put like the, the, the non-human races and stuff in there, as, or the non-human backgrounds as um, uh, in the NPC section. But also, I just like, like, like when I did Ogre Gate, I did that. I had, I, not quite like you did, I, I, a different direction, but I had a lot of, uh, like, it, monsters are obviously something that you need in the game, but it's a real pain when you're a GM and, you're, and, and, and you essentially have to make new PCs when the players meet people. Do you know what I mean? To not have those characters available to you in the rule book can be very, diff- you know, just very difficult in terms of ease of use. So I think having a whole section like that is really great. Um, yeah, I became determined to add this after I noticed a couple years in of using the this swords and wizardries in the households I was adding on to it that I kept making up these cheat sheets mm. that I would use during play and. I would go to prior cheat sheet and pull out the characters I made, tweak one or two, and that became the new cheat sheet for the next. Now thinking, dang, if I just completely fleshed this out, it would just be like the monster manual, except for NPCs. No, I, I love that. I, I think that's a um, that's a really good use of the, of, uh, of, uh, of 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 your monster section. Do you know what I mean? Just making sure that there's plenty of NPCs. Now, is that are, are those separate sections? Like there's an NPC section and there's a monster section? Like there are different yeah. chapters in the book? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I like yeah, that. Yeah, I, I, think, I think the NPCs are distinct enough that the intersperse them with the monster will make it confusing for people to look up because generally monsters are the things you put in for dungeons and, yeah. and wilderness and stuff like that. Um you know, granted, you'll find orcs in those same situation or goblins, but uh, but by and large, you know, when you create uh, intelligent opposition, 
you kind of want them separated out so you yeah. can go to a place that makes your intelligent uh, op opposition to find a reference for your intelligent opposition. The um, yeah, so, and again, I apologize. I, I have a slight cough, and it's getting a little harder to control. Um, oh. But uh, uh, before before we we head out, I did want to ask you about your influences. Uh, you know, specific to this project, obviously, but in general, like what uh, what types of fiction are influence the, this project? What type of history influences this project? And if there are any particular game lines that were influential in terms of how you, you know, uh, you know, the kind of game that you knew you wanted to make, um, you know, just stuff like that. Sure. Um, well, uh, the first and most important one is the fact I, when I was growing up, uh, I, I liked write, reading history books. And my one of my favorite books that to have my mom read to me before I learned how to read myself was the Golden Book Encyclopedia, believe it or not. I just loved the fact there were so many people out there. And it wasn't just present day, it was just also back in time as well. And I never lost that interest. But more immediate to, to uh, what I do now, as far as tabletop role-playing game, of course, with J.R. Tolkien, specifically the Lord of the Rings appendices. I just loved them. You know, I just loved reading that. I mean, I loved the books too, but I loved reading that. The sense of history that they gave, and I dabbled in my own. And then one of the things that appealed when uh, Dungeons and Dragons, and I'll use the term because. Dungeons and Dragons came out was it hit me if I run a campaign I can write a history and it will be useful because there's one thing to write a history for yourself it's sort of like a leisure time pastime it's yeah. fun but what do you do with it afterwards if you're I mean maybe write a book based on it like Tolkien did but you know I could tell even at age I wasn't going to be much of a writer but with Dungeons and Dragons I could use it, and although I made a stumble a few times and did too much of an info dump, I learned to moderate and learned to more look for the kind of characters. You know, look. You know, when I write a history, I look into what kind of people uh, are in the history, that and that was more appealing to the players. And then uh, that set me on the path today. And then uh, another major influence was uh, Raymond Feist. The Mechemia series, the Rift War, the Presley the first uh, uh, four books. Uh, his uh, Daughter of the Empire series that came right after that. That was also influential. Um, I didn't really like the Thieves World book, but I like how my friend Tim described the Thieves World book, so that also inspired me. Um, then later on uh, Game of Thrones was pretty nice but uh, I was more influenced by RPGs like Ars Magica mm -hmm. that was a huge influence the way they wove it wasn't so much the rules it was how they wove a whole culture of magic user and they really nicely interleave into Europe they created a they have, they have a sideways version of Europe that they call Mythic Europe 
but the stuff that is influenced by the mage is the same as our own Middle Age. Uh, I was influenced by Harn and Harnmaster, uh, by the wonderful uh, and more importantly, concise level of detail that they had about their setting. Now, people, when they look at Harn, think, God, I mean, if we had video, I could show you. I have this whole shelf full of Harn material. Now, how can I learn all that? But and actually, when you look at an individual Harn article or even the core book itself, it is very tersely. They get right to the point, yeah, tell you what you, need, 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 what you need to know, uh, and move on. And they kept this for decades on end. The only thing that's majorly different from before is they now talk more about the people as well. Before they'll give you a name in one or two sentences. Mm. Now they'll give you a, maybe a paragraph about certain individuals. Mm. And they will also include a sidebar of adventure seeds. And, but they don't go overboard with it. So today's articles are, a lot, are, are just even better. Um, and uh, just looking at my shelf here, GURPS, the, especially the source books, because they condense all the information in a really easy to digest format. Then you can go to their bibliography and, and read the details if you want. Um, you know, that. I can go on for hours about it, but that's pretty much the the highlights of it. Yeah, I think Harn is a great, uh, great line. Um, I was introduced to it by my uh, my 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 business partner, who was in love with it, and it was kind of like you had said that you you would uh, you weren't what was the series that you weren't into, but uh, through your friend Thieves World, yeah. your friend's yeah. description of it, that's that's how I slowly found my way into Harn. Was you know I this. I got this description of it, and it was very intriguing. And then he uh, gave me, um, uh, what's that adventure? Hundred Bushels of Rye, I think. Um, oh yeah, that's yeah. a good one. That's a real. It's a really good adventure, and it does so much with, with, what doesn't seem like so much. Do you know what I mean? Like it gives you yeah, a drunk night, a monster preying on the village, and uh, some pissed off barbarian tribesmen. And it, and it even has this like location that's kind of a dungeon, but. It's very simple. It's not elaborate. It's not like, you know, you're, there's, you're not saying I'm going to go left or right. It's just like a, a side view of what's essentially like a, a, if I remember, like some kind of cavern that's in a hill that's sort of a vertical drop down. There's a number of ways to get into it. But uh, yeah, yeah. If you tried to go, it, 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 it's basically a sinkhole, that, but it's wider at the bottom than it is at the top. So you got that problem, and at the bottom is water. Yes, yes, and it's yeah, like a puzzle. You, it's like a puzzle. You, yes, exactly. And that's you had to figure out, you know, because that's where the monster laired, and you had if you wanted to get dig the monster out, that's where you were. You had to figure out how to deal with that that terrain. It was realistic too. That that there are places on our world like that. Yeah, it was. It, I I really like how they they're able to do that with Harn, um, and uh. I think one of the things that maybe is intimidating to people is the if you if you try to if you don't know about Harn and you try to get into it, you have no idea where to begin. I think that's the uh, well, they they, the they, they remedied that. Oh, they, have they? What have they, they done? Well, if the the basic level of Harn is uh, if you're not interested in the RPG, then all you need to start out with is Harn World itself and the Harn decks. 
Mm. Okay. Okay. Hard Hard World is like the prose, the articles mm-hmm. about Hard, and it explains. It gives you a history, talks you about you know, a lot of details about Hard that you you need. And in the Hard deck, it's like the encyclopedia, but each entry is like a paragraph compared to the articles themselves. Okay. So once you get those two, and you find out what you like. Then you can figure out which articles you want to get. The only caution I have to give anybody looking to get in home, it is premium priced. But I gotta say, these guys have been at it a very long time. Their quality has been top notch since the beginning. So um, you know it won't steer you wrong. And even if you don't get into Harn itself, you can maybe buy one of their castle articles and use it in your your D&D campaign, your Fantasy Hero campaign, your Fantasy Age campaign, because the Harn articles are the, the Harn setting itself is systemless, so you can use it anywhere. And that's part of the part of the reasons why I got to be good at the sandbox DM, because when I got in a jam, I just reached around and pull out a castle article, maybe rotate the map by 90 degrees, and that's what I use for the location until I, I got the time to do what I want, you know, to do something else. They do have a system, though, correct? Because I remember I got... Yeah, um, they have the Harm Master system. Yeah, that's, I have that. I have the Harm Master. It's a D100 uh, system. Uh, it has a very unique combat system. There are no hit points. that you suffer injury, which reduces skills. And the way how you die or have other bad things happen is when you get whacked, uh, you have to make a saving throw. So at first, the, the saving throws are easy, even though if you get grievously injured, it's... it's it's pretty tough to make, dope tough to save, mm-hmm. but it's not as tough later on. Why, if you after you suffered a couple of injury or injury, and now you have a huge negative modifier to your saving throw, or even at, at which point even a scratch could cost you to pass out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely a worthwhile uh, product, I think, and uh, um, and bushels awry. I think is if you can, is that still available or is that something? Yeah. You have to, okay. Yeah, because I got a really old version of it. I don't know if they've updated it or not, but but it was really. No, they have, a, they have a cleaned up PDF now. Okay. They relayed they relayed it out, but it's still when they do that, they they kind of keep the same format. I like the old. I like the format of the older books actually these days. I, I sometimes I like to just you know like I've 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 some products are available as POD now, but you can still get the old books on Amazon and stuff. And if they're not like super expensive, I'll usually go for the ones on Amazon. Um, though it seems I don't know. Have you noticed that like getting old RPGs is way more expensive than it was just a few years ago? Oh um, yeah, yeah. Like seven hundred dollars for like you know old rule books and box sets. And back in I think like is not that long ago. Like back in two thousand eight or two thousand nine. I was buying stuff like that for pennies. It seemed like I, I, I bought all the complete books for like twenty five cents each at one point, um, and and I think I got like a bunch of one e DMGs for like two dollars. Um, yeah, I know. I'm trying to score a copy of First Edition Arms Law, and I have no luck. My last, I don't really. I mean, I have a lot of RPG stuff. Mm. Uh, mostly because I never lost any. I did. I didn't lose very much from back in the day. Mm. But there are a few things that uh, got busted up or missing. Mostly my uh, 80s 
1980s box sets. So when I when I started when I had my first few success publishing, I started using my paper the money I got part of the money I got to buy all the stuff I was missing. Mm -hmm. So the last thing I got was uh, I finally scored a copy of the box set of Dragon Quest from SBI. The uh, how, how 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 much did that cost you? Forty five dollars. That's not too bad. Yeah, that's not too bad. But they um, have gone up a notch since then. I've noticed. I mean, I've I've been really surprised at some of the prices I, I've been I've been seeing, um, which I mean I guess maybe it's so scarce, but part of me is sort of thinking. I know there are a lot of people that are just collectors, and and that concerns me that maybe they've just been scooped up by collectors, and that's driven the prices up. Um, well, there's there's a forum of collectors, and they've been on the ball for years, mm. but now it seems to have you know, but the Beyond those guys, there wasn't a whole lot of buzz about collecting. Hmm. But now the buzz is not just limited there anymore. It's spreading all over the place. I, I had a collector buy one of my books at one point because one of the, I, th I think it was Crime Network, I can't remember, but one of our books, when it got printed, one of the printings, somehow there was a weird mistake and the inside of the book ended up being this 1950s, like, um, I forget what it was, some kind of sewing book or fashion book on the inside. I can't remember exactly what it was, but the cover was our, our book. And so uh, apparently those kinds of misprints are very valued by certain collectors. And I heard from this collector that had bought a copy of my book and he showed it to me. And when I off the way I found out he was a collector was I offered, I was like, oh, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll give you a, a new one, a new copy. I didn't realize that there was a printing error. And he was like, oh, no, 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 I bought it because of the printing error. So, um, you know, you know, there's a, I, I think, I think the, the, the things that collectors look for are not always the same things that you and me might be looking for when we, uh, <coughs> when we, when we buy games online. Um, well, we, before we sign off, I forgot there's one other aspect of my Kickstarter I want to mention. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, now you play. I don't know if you remember this when you uh, played in my, uh, you know, that that uh, Russet Lord adventure, but I gave you those handouts to make your characters with. Those are quick. Re I I am formatting those as a series of quick uh, quick reference cards. Okay. Now these are not playing card side. These are just eight by eight inches and ten inches. Uh, I'm using the uh, RPG drive through RPG uh, card printing facilities uh, to print them out with. And uh, as well as providing a PD, PDF uh, for people to print them out on home. But the idea is you print them out, you divide the print the cards, or you print them out yourself on cardstock. And so you start off and hand the players the class card that you ask them what character class they want to play. Then you hand them the uh, background card, and you ask them which background they want to play. And you also hand them the class class card, which on the back will have the equipment. Mm -hmm. And this way I found, because what I wanted to do at conventions and stuff when I ran the adventures like the Russet Lord, I wanted to give players a taste of what it's like to make a classic edition character. Mm -hmm. But of course, you only have a four-hour time block. You don't want to waste too much time doing it. Now, because it's you know based on swords and wizardry, initially I was able to keep it under a half hour with using the uh, rule books and 
me as acting as coach. Uh, but it was a bit of a pain in the butt because you know I only had two rule books and table of five player five or six players. So then I came up with the idea of using these cards, and it went went down from a half hour to about 20 to 15 minutes for each player to complete oh, wow. their character. Still, I had to coach, but with the cards, I just had to point out one or two items, answer a question or two, and they were off to the races. And it would, So I refined them since then, mm-hmm. and now I decided to uh, offer them as a formal product for not only the basic rules, but for any of the other OSR RPGs that have open content like Swords and Wizardry Complete, hope you know, and after that will be I will look at Osric and I'll look at, you know, old school central. Although for now I'm just focusing on my basic rules and maybe I'll get Swords and Wizardry Complete done before the end of the Kickstarter. I, I but do that's th- also, Oh go ahead. Go ahead. That that's part of the Kickstarter as well. Yeah, I, I do think more people should focus on the amount like keeping track of how much time it takes to make characters and that sort of thing. Um, oh, yeah. It sounds like you were actually tracking the time, too, which is, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I ran. There was a period of time where I went to four conventions a year, and I did this for five years straight. And I also was able to get, because I had a lot of business trips servicing my company's machine, I usually, uh, two or three times a year, I get to go to a, a game store in some other place of the country mm-hmm. and able to run a game there. So I racked up, I started racking up a lot of sessions. So I got a lot of, does this work? Yes. Does this mm-hmm. work? No. Does this work? Yes. Yes. So I got a lot of uh, practical time in with a variety of people. So I'm pretty confident that people will find this useful. Okay. No, that's, that's one of the things I like about your stuff is it's very table tested um which you know it makes a big difference um so so yeah so we're, we're coming up on an hour so i think we should end it here but is there anything else you want to mention um you know obviously the uh, yes yes oh go, go ahead okay so so people who know that i publish some judges guild material uh particularly the uh, uh a reprint of the original waterlands of high fantasy with my color maps, as, as you well know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I also, along that, I was given permission to print out a series of guidebooks so that people would have the setting information to go along with that map. Now, due to the unfortunate post by Blob Bloodsaw the, the second, you know, Judges Guild is no longer widely available. However, prior to that happening, he owed me money for doing those color maps for his Kickstarter, which Judges Guild is in trouble with, mm-hmm. and they're trying to get out of the hole. So I just said, look, you don't have to pay me the fee for the last mine map if you let me sell them on my store. Uh, and I offered them to the Kickstarter backers for free. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, yeah. And then he, uh, in a, at first it was for royalties, and then he said, uh, you know, just waive the royalties. So until you, re- you reach the total amount, you don't have to pay me royalty. And then everything happened, happened. So if you go to my store and buy the Judges Guild stuff, know that none of the money goes towards 
uh, blah, blood all the second, all the money goes to paying what he owes me. Okay. okay. They're going to be up for a while because at the end of first quarter of this year, I was 48% of the way towards what he owes me. Now I'm only 52%. I am 52% of the way to what he owes me three months later. So it's going to be a while before okay. I take him down because I'm not going to work with a racist mm-hmm. and a guy who posted anti-Semitic po- uh, posts like he did. And uh, so the moment I have to pay him royalty again, I'll be taking that, that part of my story down. Okay. All right. So that's good for people to know. And um, is there uh, any any other things about the Kickstarter you want to mention before we head out or... No, and I just thank you to all the back, those who backed it and to those who of you who are listening. I hope you decide to come on board. I think it would be worth your money. And uh, it's designed, I am trying to write everything so that it will just dovetail. You can take yank sections of it out and put it in your own campaign without having to run the whole thing. So if you like how I handle magic items or spells, just take them and use them for your stuff and enjoy and uh, and your company is Bat in the Attic Games, right? And that's also your yeah. blog, right? Your your blog page is is it just Bat in the Attic or is Bat Bat in the Attic Games the blog website? Uh, it's Bat in the Attic. Uh, yeah, it's Bat in the Attic. I'll give you the links. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, de- I definitely recommend checking out the blog. There's a lot. There's like a lot of very useful content there. Um, and so yeah, so so we'll head out, and you know, hopefully we'll have Rob on again. Uh, and until next time, we will talk to you later.